Well, good morning, everybody, uh, both those here and those out there. It feels really weird to be in front of this auditorium again after four months. But uh, we're glad that you could join us uh, live on, online this morning and look forward to having a service here at the building next, uh, next Sunday, uh, Lord willing. Well, happy 4th of July weekend to all of you. And uh, it, it's been interesting. I have been uh, looking at some videos online about the number of people in our country that really don't know much about our history. And uh, it's easy for me to be critical of that because I am a history buff. Um, but 244 years ago yesterday, um, something very special happened in this land. We had 13 colonies in this uh, country, the British uh, subjects of the crown, and the Great Britain was trying to rebound financially after the French and Indian War, and they were imposing taxes on their colonies and the protectorates around the, around the world, and the colonies didn't take to that too kindly. And about 15 months before signing the Declaration of Independence, a war had broken out, shots fired around Lexington and Concord and Massachusetts. And uh, then in 1776, July 2nd, uh, delegates or the uh, members of the Continental Congress were gathered in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and signed a document mostly drafted by Thomas Jefferson. And then two days later, on July 4th, 1776, the delegates from all 13 colonies signed that declaration, indicating their intention uh, officially to separate from the British uh, crown. And thus began the, what George Washington described as the great experiment. He said the establishment of our new government seemed to be the last great experiment for promoting human happiness. Uh, this invitation to pursue happiness, if you know the language of the declaration, it says that we have, uh, as people of the United States, we have the opportunity to pursue uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And that invitation to pursue happiness has launched a lot of hopes and dreams down through the years. Dreams that would at times be beaten back by war and by dissension and poverty and discrimination that contradicted its claims. Uh, next summer, Lord willing, uh, Betty and I are going to pack up and spend uh, four weeks driving around the United States. Uh, I've never seen uh, most of what's west of the Mississippi, and so looking forward to that opportunity to see some of the things that uh, I've read about, seen pictures of, but not seen myself. And yet, you think about it, America, we, we love the landscape, and we can talk about places that we'd like to visit or have visited, and, and yet the landscape is not America. Uh, America is not the Everglades and the Grand Canyon and the Tetons and the Great Lakes. America is its people. I don't know if any of you have ever watched uh, Thor Ragnarok, but they talk about this toward the end of the movie. The people are, are, are leaving Asgard, and, and Thor's insisting Asgard is not a place. It, it's a people, and the same for us as Americans. What makes America are its um, it's young and it's old. It's rich and it's poor. It's accountants and it's auto workers. It's soldiers and it's civilians. It's students and it's senior citizens. It's Native Americans. 
It's descendants of European immigrants. It's descendants of slaves. And it's first generation of naturalized citizens. This is America. And these people that constitute America, all 331 million of us, are God's concerns. And a far, a far greater concern goes beyond this temporary things that we look for and love like our freedom and prosperity. We're back in the book of Luke this morning, so if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23, starting at verse 26. <clears throat> and if you are at home, you can uh, tap that little tab that says sermon notes and print that out if you haven't already. And then at the back, on the back page of the sermon notes are some questions that you and your family can uh, talk about or you and your care group uh, at some time in the future. Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 26. Now, um, we left Luke for a number of weeks. Let me just orient you. Jesus has been found guilty. Um, well, scratch that. Jesus has been found innocent, but he's going to be executed anyway. And so he is on the way to his execution site Going through the streets of Jerusalem, verse 26, as they led Jesus away, a man named Simon, who was from Cyrene, happened to be coming in from the countryside. The soldiers seized him and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large crowd trailed behind, including many grief-stricken women. But Jesus turned and he said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me. For the days, weep rather for yourselves and for your children. For the days are coming when they will say, fortunate indeed are the women who are childless, the wombs that have not borne a child, and the breasts that have never nursed. Now this, just by the way, would have not been the point of view, the average Jew. It was thought that those who couldn't have children were cursed by God. And Jesus is turning that notion on its head and saying there's a time coming when they will be considered blessed. Verse 30, people will beg the mountains, fall on us. They'll plead with the hills, bury us. For if these things are done when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Father, I pray that uh, this morning, Holy Spirit would speak to us through your word. I pray that we would think about the text that you're about these words that Jesus spoke to people 2,000 years ago, not simply as historical words, but as moving, living, breathing words, words for us today, even as Americans or whatever nationality we are. Words spoken to us about our concern, about a concern for ourselves that we ought to have and a concern for the people of our nation that we ought to have. Uh, we pray against the enemy who, who loves to see us focus on side things, who loves to see us become petty with one another, who, who loves to see us um, at each other's throats and to take sides. And we pray instead that you might orient our hearts to take your side and to listen to what you have to say to us about ourselves and about each other 
and about all 331 million people in this great land. We, we pray for a softening and a shaping of our hearts by that spirit and by this word. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to talk to you this morning uh, about two things that I see in this text. One, the gospel tragedy, and two, the greater gospel tragedy. A gospel tragedy and then the greater gospel tragedy. And what I mean by the gospel tragedy is the fact that Jesus is headed to a cross to be executed for a crime he'd never committed, for a sin he'd never committed, absolutely, totally, by the highest powers in the land of that day, been declared innocent, and yet he was going to die. And that's the great gospel tragedy. I want to contrast though, the man that carried Jesus' crossbeam to Golgotha with Jesus. Simon was plucked out of a crowd. We don't know really who he was. He was probably in town by his name, Simon. He was probably Jewish, probably in town for the Feast of Passover. And the Romans picked him out. The uh, Gospel of John tells us that Jesus started to carry his cross. We assume that somewhere along the way he crumbled beneath the weight, having lost as much blood as he did, as much strength as he didn't have. And Simon was plucked out and asked to carry or required to carry the cross the rest of the way. That's the main thing I want to see you contrast with Jesus. Simon's service was forced. Simon's service was forced. Just a little interesting side note. Do you ever wonder why they make such a big deal about identifying Simon by name and identifying him by the place of where he's come from? Matthew, Mark, Luke all identify him as Simon, not only Simon, but Simon of Cyrene. We think that's probably because there were people in the early church who got this letter, this gospel account by Luke or by the other gospel writers and would have known, some of them would have known this man because presumably he became a Christian. You can just imagine someone bearing this cross of Christ out to Golgotha, watching him be pinned on this cross, so mangled, his body just, just a wreck. And hearing the things that he said from the cross, my guess is he became a follower of Jesus. And so probably people would have known him and they could have verified the gospel writers are saying, look, you can check out what we're saying. You can check with Simon. Simon's service was forced. This is a strange thing to say in light of my heading of this point, the gospel tragedy, but Jesus' service was willing. Jesus' service was willing. Never, never um, think that Jesus went to the cross reluctantly. We know from the prayer anguish that he had in the garden that there was a season that was a struggle for him because he was, after all, the God-man. He's thinking about all that lies ahead with the pain and the anguish, the physical pain. He's also thinking about the soul pain that lies ahead because he's going to bear the sins of the world. But do not think that Jesus was dragging his feet. He was telling his disciples again and again and again, this is what's going to happen to me. And listen to this in John chapter 10, verse 18. John 10, verse 18. Jesus said, no one can take my life from me. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to 
and I also have the authority to take it up again, for this is what my Father has commanded. Along these lines, the same thing Jesus told, uh, told Pilate. You would have no, he says, don't you know I have the authority and the power to take your life? And Jesus says, no, you don't actually. You wouldn't have any authority over me if it were not given to you by my Father. Simon's service forced. Jesus' serving service was willing. And you remember Jesus said, there's no greater love than this than a man lay down his life for his brothers. 1 John 3.16. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but 1 John 3.16 has a wonderful gospel correlation with John 3.16. As John says, the greatest picture of love that the world has ever seen has been Jesus laying his, down his life for you and you and you. The gospel is drenched in suffering and blood and death. And that's a tragedy. That's the gospel tragedy. But there's something beyond that tragedy that's more important. One of my favorite all-time movies is A Few Good Men. I am a a shameless fan of Tom Cruise. I think he's one of the best actors that's ever lived. And uh, despite what Shane thinks. <laughs> but but in, in the movie, A Few Good Men, Lieutenant Kendrick, Kiefer Sutherland, is on the a witness chair in the courtroom. And uh, if you know the story of the movie, uh, there's a man who has been disciplined by, his, uh, by other soldiers or other Marines in the barrack, and he ends up dying. And Lieutenant Kendrick said this. He said, Private Santiago is dead, and that is a tragedy. And then he goes on to compare that with some other good. And when we talk about Jesus' tragedy of going to the cross, I want to compare it this morning about some other, with some other bad. There is a, a greater gospel tragedy beyond Jesus' loss of life as an innocent sufferer and the death that he died on the cross, the greater gospel tragedy. And Jesus depicted this when he turned to this crowd that was following him to Golgotha, and the women in the front are weeping. And sometimes we get the idea that all the Jews were against Jesus. And that's not the case. There were some who followed him, there were some who hated him, and there were probably a great vast that were in the middle that weren't really sure about Jesus. Because Luke says there's a great crowd following Jesus. It's not just a few of his fans. Great crowd following. And he singles out the, some of the women there who are clearly Jews. He calls them daughters of Jerusalem. And he says, don't weep for me. They think that's the tragedy. That Jesus is going to go to this cross. He's innocent. He's going to be put to death, death in the most horrific way anyone has ever devised to kill a man. Don't weep for me. You should weep instead for your children. And you should weep instead for yourselves. What did he mean? You should weep for yourselves. You should weep for your children. Why? I'm doing exactly what I was called to do. Give my life for you. But so many of you in Jerusalem and really all of Israel have rejected me. Grieve for yourselves and others, not me. And Jesus himself grieved for the very people he's speaking to 
and about. A couple of chapters earlier, Luke chapter 19, uh, verse 41. But as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, Jesus began to weep. How I wish today that all of that you of all people would understand the way to peace, meaning you Israelites as of all people. But now it is too late, too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. And now he's going to fast forward 40 years down the road. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. The events that he's describing about will be the Roman army comes in against Jerusalem. The Jews are in revolt against Rome. Titus surrounds the city. Eventually he destroys the wall. His troops come into the city and they destroy the temple stone by stone by stone by stone. And it was a bloodbath. And Jesus is saying, you have rejected me. You have turned from me. My death really is inconsequential when it comes to your future because you have rejected me. And then he says something that is very, very strange. Back to our text in Luke 22, verse 31. For if these things... uh, Actually, I'm going to back up again and read the uh, verse 29 through verse 31 for the days are coming when they will say fortune indeed are the women who are childless the wombs that have uh, not born a child and the breasts that have never nursed people will beg the mountains they will beg the mountains fall on us and they will plead with the hills bury us for if these things are done when the tree is green what will happen when it is dry For if these things happen when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? What in the world is he talking about? I think he's talking about this, and we're going to go to Revelation in just a minute. I'll try to prove that to you. I think Jesus is speaking about himself as the green tree. And he is speaking about those who have rebelled against him, just like the Jewish daughters of Jerusalem that he's concerned about, who have rejected him said no to him and eventually a day is coming not 40 years down the road from when this was written or when Jesus was saying this but thousands of years down the road when the son of God will come back to planet earth to exercise perfect justice not the kind that Pilate exercised but perfect justice on a world that has rejected him He's dying. He's the green tree. He's bringing life. He's brought the kingdom. He's inaugurated God's kingdom, the start of it. And a day is going to come long down the road when the tree is no longer green. Now the wood is all dried. Look at Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. If you were um, thinking about the lyrics this morning, that one song we sang, we talked about who, who is worthy to open the scroll. And in Revelation chapter 5, John had seen this vision about a, in a scroll, and they were searching for someone who qualified to open the scroll, and they couldn't find anyone. No one is worthy, and, and John is consumed with grief that no one in the human race 
qualifies, is worthy to open the scroll. And then the angel said, don't worry, John, it's okay. The lamb is able to open the scroll, the son of David. And so we see in chapter 5, chapter 6, the beginning of these um, seals on this scroll being opened up. And we get to the very end of chapter 6. And listen to what it says. And this harks back to Jesus' comments to these women. And they cried to the mountains. Well, let me, let me back up to actually verse 15. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, every slave and free person. Nobody's uh, missed there. They all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, meaning the, uh, the, the one who sits on the throne, that's God the Father, and the wrath of the Lamb, that's God the Son, the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to survive? These lines remind us that the caricature of Jesus that is so often portrayed today of the meek and mild Jesus who will put his arm around you and no matter what you do, think, and say, he's okay with it. And these are going to be the people who are seeking out the mountains and seeking out the rock piles in the hopes that they will these inanimate things will hide them from the wrath of Jesus, the Lamb. You see what Jesus is saying? He's warning these women. You should weep for those who have rejected me. If that's you, weep for yourself. If that's your children, your grandchildren, weep for them. If that's your neighbors, if that's your colleagues at work, weep for them. If that's for those in your political party or the other party, weep for them. If that's your friends, weep for them. If If that's your parents, weep for them. And I want to ask us the question today here on this 4th of July weekend celebration where we celebrate this great nation, warts, flaws that mark it nonetheless. Do you have that kind of concern for the people of this land? Not its landscapes, not its landmarks, but it's people, the ones that make up America. The, the kind of passion that an apostle Paul had for his own people. Turn to Romans chapter 9. Every time I read this, I am convicted by it, and yet I can't go there with Paul. I, I just don't think I have it in me. Romans chapter 9, verse 1 with Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. And he's going to make a lot of statements to try to convince you that he's telling the truth because you're not going to believe what he says. With Christ as my witness, I speak with utter truthfulness. My conscience and the Holy Spirit confirm it. It's not just my testimony. My heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for my people. My Jewish brothers and sisters, and here's the statement that's unbelievable. I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, damned 
sent to hell, if that would save them, would you be willing to do that for someone else, for some other people, no matter how much you love them? I would be willing to be forever cursed, cut off from Christ, if that would save them. Statistics tell us that about 70% of Americans claim to be Christians. That's their claim. It's not independently verified or anything. About 40% of Americans say they actually attend worship services with any kind of regularity. However, pollsters have figured out how to ask subsequent questions to figure out whether people were telling the truth in the earlier questions. And the fact of the matter is only about 20% of Americans actually attend any kind of worship services. Now, I'm going to go with a higher number. I don't believe for a minute that 70% of Americans are actual followers of Jesus. But I'm going to go with a higher number of the 40 and 20%. Let's just round it off for a couple, about a million, and say that leaves about 131 million Christians. If you do the math, that leaves 200 million Americans who do not know Christ. 200 million Americans, some of whom are probably very nice people. Some of them probably live next door to you. Some of them are probably related to you. Some of them are probably your friends. Some of them might be people that you care deeply about. And frankly, some of them are people that you could care less about. And I could care less about. Two hundred million dry trees. 200 million people who either don't believe there is a God or they don't believe that he's holy. In other words, if he is, does exist, he's simply a pat on the back, affirming, applauding, cheerleading grandpa. 200 million dry trees who think that if there is any kind of afterlife, it's simply rainbows and unicorns. 200 million dry trees, some of whom may say that your faith, your faith in Jesus Christ is immoral according to their moral code, which they have acquired from Hollywood or Washington, D.C. or New York City. 200 dry trees who are more concerned about the color of the car that they purchased than about the call of God on their lives to repent of sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. 200 million dry trees destined to live in horrific judgment that never will end. And so let us listen to Jesus ask, Are you weeping for your people? 
Is your heart broken for your people? And does what you and I do and say and the priorities that we make have establish hint to having this kind of Jesus concern for our nation? When we talk about the need for the world, I sometimes leave that hanging and that's probably not the best thing to do. I'm, I'm going to ask you to do something in light of this. And in light of, in, in light of the times in which we live and what's going on in our country. I want you to pick someone in this land, whether you know them or not, that you don't particularly care for. I'm sure there's plenty of options. And I want you to decide that you're going to pray for that person. It may be the person running for office of the other party. It might be someone some celebrity figure in entertainment industry or the sports industry. It might be someone that really is not very famous, but you know them and you really... Hmm. When I read social media, my, my heart is grieved because many of the people that are my friends on social media follow Jesus. And I wonder where is, what has happened to our love that was put in us by Jesus. Pick one person that you're going to start praying for. Grieve for yourselves and for your children and for the people you work with, go to school with, and are related to Go to the doctor at your grocer. Grieve for them. Father, I want to confess my own sinfulness. And I don't have Paul's heart. And I don't have Jesus' heart. And it's easier for me to sling mud or think evil, dark thoughts about people I disagree with than weep for the fact that many of them are lost, just as lost as I was when I was 24 years old. And just as much in need of the mercy and grace that Jesus purchased for them 2,000 years ago on a rough-hewn cross. Oh, God, break our hearts and give us yours for the good of our nation and the people that comprise it. In Jesus' name, amen.